Our text this morning, Judges 7, verses 16 through 25. The topic, Gideon tells his 300-man army to simultaneously blow their trumpets at his signal. The title of our message, Trumpets of Mass Destruction. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning, as we track Gideon through this battle, I pray that you would speak to us about the warfare we're involved in and how you are utilizing us to further the gospel. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. Whoso pulleth out this sword of this stone and anvil is rightwise ruler born of England. And by England, the cast member means fantasy land. At Disneyland, the sword and the stone ceremony is held on the castle side of the King Arthur Carousel, where coincidentally, there is a rather large anvil and a rather large sword embedded in it. Merlin, the magician, appears periodically during the day to announce that the realm is having a temporary leadership crisis and is in need of a new temporary ruler. Can someone be found who has the necessary courage and strength to be that new ruler? Merlin selects volunteers who attempt to pull the sword from the stone. Anybody here ever tried to pull the sword from the stone at Disneyland? There you go. He usually picks a rather burly man uh, who is unable to do it, only to be shown up by a five-year-old as they, they have a switch, by the way. <laughs> the triumphant volunteers proclaim ruler of the realm with all of the privileges and responsibilities that go with it, which means they receive a sword and the stone pin and uh, I think a certificate unless they've cut back. Now, at first reading, it's going to seem that swords would figure prominently in the verses we are studying today because they are twice mentioned. In verse 18, Gideon's 300 men are instructed to say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And then in verse 20, the battle commences in earnest when they cry, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Despite the dual mention of swords, however, Gideon and his men are not armed with them. They carry only trumpets, empty pitchers, and torches. It begs the question, what is the sword of the Lord? Well, in this passage, the sword of the Lord is not a what, it's a who. It is Gideon being wielded by God as his weapon of choice to defeat the Midianites and their evil coalition forces. By extension, the sword of the Lord is each of the 300 men in Gideon's army. I don't think it's a stretch to say that you, if you're a Christian, you are likewise God's sword. Yes, I know the Word of God, the Bible, is the sword of God. But he puts it in your heart and in your hands, and in that sense, you are his sword. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you are the sword that the Lord has deployed against his enemies. And number two, you are the sword that the Lord has engaged to defeat his enemies. Let's take a look, first of all, at our deployment in verses 16 through 18. If you think I'm going too far to say that you're the sword, maybe this quote from Robert Murray Machane will ease your doubts. Never heard of him? He's quoted by Charles Spurgeon. Never heard of him? Then you need to get out more. <laughs> Machane said, Remember, you are God's sword. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And by minister, he means anyone who is carrying the gospel, not a formal minister, just a Christian. As spiritual as he was, Machane's words aren't the word of God. So can we find any place in the Bible that might justify our thinking that the Lord's servant could be considered his sword? Well, there's a passage in the 49th chapter of the book of Isaiah that describes God's servant as his weapon. The servant is talking, and he says, 
And God has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And so God's servant, here identified as Israel, but commentators see a dual meaning because later in that chapter it's clear that the Messiah is in view. But either way, they are described as being God's weapon. Then there is Jeremiah 51.20. God says to King Cyrus, Thou art my battle axe and weapon of war. You know what this means, by the way. It means you can call your wife an old battle axe. And it's a biblical compliment. Let me know how that works out, by the way. In his word, God's servant was a sword. He was an arrow in the quiver. He was a battle axe. So yes, a believer can be considered a weapon in God's hand. Now, uh, God had gotten a hold of Gideon, and he was about to wield him as his sword, as Meshane would say, an awful weapon in the hand of God. We're picking up the story, so a bit of review is in order. The Israelites were idolaters. They were neglecting the worship of Jehovah. He disciplined them by empowering the Midianites to oppress them. Every year, for seven years, they and their allies would come at the harvest to steal the crops and to spoil the grazing land. The angel of the Lord came to Gideon to raise him up as a judge to deliver Israel. By judge, we mean someone we would call a hero. After a few preliminaries, Gideon was instructed to raise an army. 32,000 men rallied to him. God said it was too many for him to get the glory. Gideon was told to send away all those who were afraid. When the dust of their leaving settled, he was left with 10,000 men. God said that was still too many, so he whittled them down to 300 men. Did I mention that their army numbered 132,000? Israel was unmounted and unarmed. Their enemy was armed and possessed multitudes of camels, which were formidable creatures on the battlefield. I was going to go British and say formidable, but I didn't know if I could get that out. God invited Gideon to go down to the enemy encampment to do surveillance. By divine providence, Gideon went just to the spot where two Midianites were discussing a dream one of them had had. In it, Gideon defeated the Midianites, and the Midianites were filled with fear. Encouraged by God's promises and providences, Gideon returned to his unarmed army and declared, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Now we pick up in verse 16. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies. He put a trumpet into every man's hand and empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. In the Lord of the Rings, the two towers, there's a scene where Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli are choosing their weapons from the armory in Helm's Deep and adjusting their chain mail. The men of Rohan are handed various weapons, swords and helms and spears, each outfitted as well as possible from the armory. As Gideon's men stepped up, they were each outfitted with a trumpet, an empty pitcher, and a torch. It's upsetting when we hear reports that our servicemen and women are inadequately supplied, or that our police officers and sheriff's deputies or our firefighters lack the necessary equipment to keep them safe and to perform their jobs. Gideon's men seemed hopelessly, inadequately supplied. The more spiritual among them might have taken some courage from the story of a previous hero. Shamgar had defeated 600 Philistines with only an ox goad for a weapon. 
Even so, an ox goat at least looked like a weapon. It was a spear-like object with a sharp pointed tip. You could do some damage with that. No way that a trumpet, an empty pitcher, and a torch qualified as weapons. Ah, but that's the point. The real weapons were the men themselves. So equipped, they would function as God's sword against the Midianites. Now, you've been outfitted with some weapons. In Ephesians 6, you discover you've been clothed in spiritual armor that can withstand an enemy attack. And in 2 Corinthians 10.4, you're told that your weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. That sounds great until you inventory the weapons. The armor you're clothed with consists of things like truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, and salvation. The kind of warfare they're designed for is explained by the Apostle Paul in this passage from 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Listen carefully. Paul says, this is the battle we're in. He says, in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, meaning beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, and in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and being held, we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. When I'm in a trial or enduring some affliction, I want to be granted an armored transport to safety to escort me out of my circumstances. I want the spiritual equivalent of a Humvee so that I can get out of there. Instead, I, much, uh, I get things like purity, knowledge, long-suffering, and kindness. Have you ever heard the expression, kill them with kindness? While we certainly don't want to apply lethal kindness, it is, in fact, one of the ways God can wield us to defeat his enemies. To use words from the passage I just read, when folks are attacking me with dishonor and by evil report, my supernatural kindness disarms them and defeats them. God looks at my enemies and he draws down on them with me as his weapon of kindness. Now, I don't like that. I want to be his weapon of I punch you in the face. <laughs> or I file a grievance against you. Or I do something like that. Or I get the better of you. Or, or I embarrass you and stuff. And God says, this is the perfect opportunity. Kindness. Pew, pew, pew. Have you ever killed somebody with kindness? The truth is, I've been on both sides of this. And you really can disarm people by being supernaturally kind. may not happen all at once, but you'll drive people crazy if you return evil with kindness. And so this is the kind of weaponry we're talking about. When, when I say you're the sword in the Lord's hand, it's a spiritual weapon. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something like that. Now, it seems like I've been given a trumpet or an empty pitcher or torch when I'd prefer an Uzi, but the Uzi won't defeat my spiritual enemies, and these spiritual resources will. And so whatever resources God provides me, however he wants to use me as a weapon, I have to trust that is the perfect weapon to meet the enemy's attack. We need to remind ourselves that our real enemies are never flesh and blood, but it's something supernatural behind it. You can destroy a stronghold with kindness that is a fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
And so verse 17, he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. How many times in your Christian life have you been told to keep your eyes on Jesus? It's illustrated nicely here by Gideon. His men must keep their eyes on him in order to know what to do. He said, hey guys, look at me and do what I do. Keep your eyes on me. When I blow the trumpet, verse 18, and I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Gideon did not give his men a full briefing on the battle strategy. We're going to see some other elements of it in a moment. I'm guessing he did not yet know himself what the Lord wanted him to do exactly. It might seem scary or fanatic to set out without a full plan. It's a very Abraham kind of thing. Where God comes to Abraham when he was still Abram. He said, I want you to head out to the promised land. Really, where is it? Can I want to punch it in on my GPS? Uh, You'll know it when you get there. I'm leading you one step at a time. Uh, Can I have a little bit clearer direction? No, you can't. If you're following the Lord because uh, he will only lead you along the path most perfect, then you don't need further direction. You just need to hear from the Lord for today. It's intriguing to me that there were 300 trumpets. True, the initial roll call was 32,000 Israelites. If they traveled in troops, 300 trumpets was no big deal. You'd probably find at least that many among 32,000. But most of those 32,000 had been dismissed. How did they know to leave their trumpets behind? How did everybody forget a trumpet? Well, this tells me that God is always at work providing for his plan when I have no inclination whatsoever what he's doing. He knows I'll need a trumpet, and he plans for it, and he sees that I have one. I don't know how. I don't know if a word came to their hearts or if they just forgot their trumpets, but uh, no one knew this plan. It was being revealed, and yet everything they needed was there. You can always trust that the Lord will provide. If he hasn't provided something for you, you don't need it. And we need to be content with what he has given us. The translators added the words, the sword of the Lord. You see them in italics in your Bible. But it's a good addition because in verse 20, you see that was indeed part of the battle cry. Now, in this Gideon scenario we are developing, God's servants are his sword. If he wields the sword, it will always hit its mark to wound or to overcome. God is a weapons expert, knowing just what spiritual qualities are needed to defeat the enemy and to bring him glory. Some of you might be incredible marksmen. I mean, you might just, you know, you might be one of those guys that shoots six times and there's only one hole in the target because all, you know, six bullets go through or, you know, you could hit somebody else's bullseye arrow like the Robin Hood cartoons or stuff like that. You can shoot an arrow and if it's off course, shoot another one and it goes... Maybe not. But, but that's the kind of marksman God is. I mean, if you think of God as wielding a sword, let me ask you, would you want to go up against God in a sword fight or in a gun fight or in a knife fight or in a hand-to-hand combat? No, I mean, he's, got, he's going to win. There's an old uh, uh, Far Side uh, uh, cartoon where God is playing Jeopardy. You remember that one? He's got like $12 billion and the other contestants have zero. You don't want to play Jeopardy with Alex Trebek against God. And so if, if you buy into this idea that you are his weapon, he can never miss the mark. 
and he can only use you properly. We don't fight Midianites. Our struggles are against things like tribulations, needs, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labor, sleeplessness, and fastings. For our part, we're only called upon to yield to him and watch as he uses things like purity and knowledge and long-suffering and kindness and righteousness and sincere love with amazing skill. Now, secondly, you are the sword that the Lord has engaged to defeat his enemies. The following is quoted from an article I read. I I love this kind of stuff. Pay attention. Fifty years ago, during the dramatic events of the Six-Day War, the entire world saw a great miracle as God made war against Israel's enemies and redeemed the holy city of Jerusalem. Israel's sweeping victory against the seemingly insurmountable opposition of surrounding nations is one of the great miracles of the modern era. Within that great overarching miracle are uncounted smaller miracle stories about God's hand at work in the midst of the conflict. On the first day of the war, the Israeli ground forces had overrun the strategic road junction at Abu Agilia to gain access to the central route to the Sinai Desert, sending a wave of panic through the Egyptian command. In Bible times, God often assisted the people of Israel on the battlefield by throwing the Canaanites, the Philistines, and other enemies into panic and confusion. As the Bible says, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. By the second day of the six-day war, the Egyptian army had fallen into that kind of confusion. Orders from the Egyptian commanders contradicted good sense, calling for unnecessary retreats and withdrawals. The Israeli army expected to face a serious battle at the heavily defended Kusima outpost at Sinai, but as they drew near, they heard explosions. When they arrived, they discovered that the Egyptians had destroyed their own equipment and abandoned the base. At other bases, the Egyptians had not even bothered to scuttle their equipment before fleeing. It's exactly what happened in Gideon's day. Gideon and his men were about to become part of a military miracle where God chased away the enemy. And so verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Probably around midnight, Gideon deployed his army. The 300 Israelis must have been spaced equally apart in three directions, just around and outside the Midianite camp, giving them maximum coverage. Think of that moment. They were hopelessly outnumbered and outgunned. They still did not know the entire strategy. They were just there with a trumpet and a pitcher with a torch in it. What if one of them had a sneezing fit or alerted the sentries? The sheer number of things that could go wrong were staggering. One thing we could highlight in their poise before the battle is unity among these brethren. They were solidly behind Gideon, trusting in the Lord. They were in a formation that he had suggested. Every church has its proper formations. As I set about to accomplish the task God has gifted me to perform, as I set out to discover the good works he has before ordained that I should discover, I am visible to those in the formation who are doing likewise and vice versa. And so we can think of ourselves as a military formation depending on one another, not sneezing when we see the enemy. Let's stand our ground and look to one another and be united. Now Gideon blew his trumpet. His company of 100 blew their trumpets. They also broke the pitchers, something Gideon exampled but had not yet instructed. 
Then verse 20, then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and their trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. The full strategy is finally revealed. Blow your trumpet, break your pitcher, hold out your torch. Now the trumpets are most likely ram's horns, shofar they are called. Trumpets were used to announce many things and among them troop movements. 300 being blown at once would normally indicate a vast army numbering tens of thousands. Sounding all at once in the middle of the night would be terrifying. The pitchers breaking would have made considerable noise, but it seems that their main purpose was to conceal any trace of the light from the torches. Now, the torches are described like this by one commentator. He says, here the word means not lamps, but firebrands, torches. The best illustration is furnished by a passage in Lane's Modern Egyptians where he tells us that the Zabit or Aga of the police in Cairo carries with him at night a torch which burns soon after it is lighted without a flame excepting when it is waved through the air, then it suddenly blazes forth. So it's air activated. Another commentary stated, the lamps were not oil lamps for then when the pitchers were broken, the oil would have run out. They were a kind of torches made of rosin, wax, pitch, and such things. And these were put into the pitcher partly to preserve them from the wind and chiefly to conceal them from the enemy till just they came upon them and then held them out. And as they would come out, the wind would hit them, the air would hit them, and they would ignite. So verse 21, every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried and fled. There was no need to advance. In fact, any advance would be counterproductive because it might reveal to the Midianites that there were not so many Israelites as they were being led to believe. I mean, they stood their ground, blowing their trumpets, holding up their torches. They don't want to be seen as unarmed guys with torches. And so they just simply stood and God did the rest. Standing for the Lord can be challenging in trials and in afflictions rather than stand I want to retreat. In triumphs, I want to advance and take ground as spoil. In both cases, I must wait for further instruction from the Lord. Otherwise, I might make a serious mistake. King Saul won a great victory but got tired of waiting for Samuel to show up. So he took matters into his own hands. It's from 1 Samuel 15. When Samuel did arrive, he rebuked Saul saying, Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel went on to let Saul know he had been rejected by the Lord as king because of his advance. The ten spies who gave Moses a bad report about the promised land are poster boys for wanting to retreat. Their fear convinced a whole nation to disobey God, leading to the death of all that generation as they wandered in the wilderness for the next 40 years. Back to Gideon. The army encamped against Israel fled in terror with a little reckless confusion thrown in for good measure as they started to kill each other. Uh, Verse 22. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia towards Zeriah as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabith. It was dark. It was late. They thought they were being overrun by superior forces. There were several groups in the camp besides Midianites. Those are a few logical reasons that they hacked away at each other. But mostly it was the supernatural terror of the Lord coming upon them. 
Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues. Job 18.11 says, Terrors make him afraid on every side and drive him to his feet. And so the Lord, fulfilling what he said he would do in Exodus, uh, bringing terror and confusion to the enemy, he did it in Gideon's time. He did it in the Six-Day War. He can do it in our lives. The Lord can be terrifying to his enemies. Looking far into the future, one writer said, Who shall be able to stand before the last terror, when the trumpet of the archangel shall sound, the elements shall be on a flame, the heavens pass away with a great noise, and the Lord himself shall descend with a shout. I don't mind saying that Jesus Christ is terrifying, revealed in all his glory. But not if you're a believer. If you're a believer, he's the most beautiful thing that you'll ever see. It's his eyes a flame of fire and all of that. It's a beauty to behold because he's forgiven you your sin, given you eternal life. You've been raised from the dead by that point. And so uh, what, a, what a marvel, this Lord that we serve. Verse 23, the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Now these were those who had been honorably discharged on account of their fear and those who had been dismissed by the Lord when he was whittling down to the 300. They remained in the vicinity and now they were called into the fray. You may think you're living on the outskirts of Christian service, but it always behooves you to remain ready. You can be called upon to join the fray at any moment. And so there's really, uh, I, there's, I guess there's full-time Christian service, ministers and missionaries. But as far as the Bible is concerned, we're all ministers. The church is to do the work of equipping the saints, all the saints, to do the work of what? The ministry. And the ministry is you sharing the gospel and the Great Commission wherever you find yourself through your life and through your words. And so you always need to be ready. You can't think, well, you know, I, I seem to be on the outskirts. I'm on the fringes. You never know when the Lord is going to bring an opportunity for you to be used. And so these guys, I told you a few studies ago not to belittle these guys who were afraid and, and who got dismissed as if they were second-class Christians or second-class Israelites, I guess, in their case, because God wasn't through with them. It just they were going to play an important role in a different way. And so we shouldn't judge each other. Every man has the Lord as his judge. I might look at somebody and think, wow, that guy serves a lot harder than I do. The, the key this morning, the, the, the message this morning is, are you ready to serve the Lord? And then will you step up when he calls upon you? The fleeing enemies were nearest the area in which were the Ephraimites. And so Gideon sent runners to enjoin the men of Ephraim to engage in this mop-up operation. They were specifically told to seize from them watering places, which they did. Gideon did not want the weary, dehydrated enemy to be able to recover and regain their strength. Are you battling something, maybe some sin? Don't nourish it by giving in even a little. Let it dehydrate and shrivel. Let it die. Verse 25, And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb, they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb. They killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to the Gideon 
uh, to Gideon, rather, on the other side of the Jordan. No, they just happen to be killed by places named after them. No, that's not true. They named the places after them after they killed them. As an aside, my spell check all week kept changing Oreb to Oreo. <laughs> and so I had great fun with that. Oreo and Zeb. Zeb had no problem with. I guess that's Siri must know a Zeb, and maybe Siri and Zeb have a relationship. The places where they killed Oreo and Zeb were renamed to commemorate Israel's triumph over them. Now let's take a look at Gideon and each of his 300 men. They were each trumpeters who had fire contained in clay vessels until broken to expose it to the wind. It's not a stretch to say that we are trumpeters. We need no shofar. Our trumpet blast is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we are called upon to proclaim throughout the whole world. We're told by the Apostle Paul that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. I can't help but wonder if maybe Paul had Gideon in mind when he wrote that in 2 Corinthians, because in the verse directly preceding that, he said this, For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's pretty much what happened when Gideon and company broke the pitchers. There was light shining out of darkness. Only in our case, we are the vessels, and what shines is the light of the glory of God as we reveal Jesus to a world trapped in darkness. The torch exposed to wind, of course, that's an emblem of the Holy Spirit, who is God permanently indwelling us and constantly infilling us. If that is indeed what Gideon typifies for us, then is it going too far to borrow from him his battle cry? I, I was intrigued by this. In verse 20, it reads in the New King James Version, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. The scholars who wrote the Bible Knowledge Commentary translate it, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. My loose interpretive paraphrase, this is not the Word of God, I'm not, I'm not adding to the Word of God or subtracting, trust me. It's a conclusion to the message. But I think it would be fine to say in this passage that what's being taught at least, a sword for the Lord, Gideon, right? A sword for the Lord, Gideon, and whoever else he was using. And so, do you want to get Pentecostal for a minute? We're going to shout, a sword for the Lord and then your name. By your name, I mean your name, not your name. I didn't want anybody to be embarrassed. Sword for the Lord, your name. If you want to do this, fine, but let's do it and then we'll close our service. Ready? One, two, three. A sword for the Lord and Gene. All right, let's pray.